and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. In an earlier episode, I think it may have been our second episode of this podcast, That's Debatable, we spoke about Oxfam's new language guide and we were essentially saying it's pretty, it was pretty crazy. That, that language guide was suggesting that um, we should use the phrase people who become pregnant rather than mothers. Oxfam also apologised for the English language. Oxfam described that as the language of a colonising nation. So we're going to start today by asking the question, what on earth is going on at Oxfam? Because there's been a bunch of other stuff that's happened. This week, for example, during Pride Month or in the last week or so, Oxfam released a video that included a, uh, a frame referring to TERFs. The word was on a T-shirt. And the person wearing that T-shirt was a cartoonishly evil character uh, that looked eerily similar to J.K. Rowling. So we had uh, TERFs being described as, as a hate group, uh, which is, means trans-exclusionary radical feminists, as I'm sure most of our listeners uh, know. And now we also discover, those who read the uh, weekly uh, Free Speech Union newsletter, we discover that an Oxfam worker was hounded out from Oxfam for standing up for J.K. Rowling and describing J.K. Rowling as one of the most important women writers in the UK. So we just seem to have had, with Oxfam, one thing after another over the last few weeks and months, which has, has suggested that they have been completely captured by the new ideology that we talk about every week, completely captured by uh, those who, who side with the, the woke and the uh, slightly strange new uh, orthodoxy that has come into being. And what seems strange to me is that every time this has happened, Oxfam in some way has, has backed down or, 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 or apologized. And yet that only then leads to a new thing happening that puts them back into the fray, back into the headlines, and back into the news. Uh, this has caught the attention of people in Parliament. Uh, two MPs who've actually started asking questions of Oxfam are Marco Longhi, the Tory MP for Dudley North, uh, who said that Oxfam's woke behaviour is reaching new heights. Their behaviour against J.K. Rowling is appalling. And Brendan Clark-Smith, the MP for Bassett Law and chairman of the Blue Collar Conservatives, who said it's very sad to see the levels an internationally acclaimed charity has sunk to, producing nasty videos which, whatever they say, are clearly targeted at specific individuals, is unacceptable and ill-informed. So, Ben, I don't know what you've, you feel about how this wave after wave of craziness um, has, has overtaken Oxfam. It seems that they're just not learning from every time they, they stumble on this, on this, in this whole area. Well, Tom, it makes me want to breach Oxfam's language guide and use some quite strong <laughs> Anglo-Saxon vocabulary. But we learnt from the University of Cambridge that the Anglo-Saxons don't exist anymore. They've been thrown down the memory hole of history. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think what's interesting is the, I think the effect that all of this seems to be having on Oxfam itself, because there was an article uh, in the Times by Robert Colville, which was setting out uh, you know, the facts and figures comparing Oxfam as it is now in terms of its donations, its volunteer force and so on, as compared to a decade ago. And mm. I think it's, I mean, there's a cost of living crisis and so on, but I think people are 
noticing increasingly what Oxfam is up to, um, the various scandals that have engulfed it, this uh, constant drip, drip, drip of woke nonsense. Um, and and you can see that reflected in its in its figures. So um, it, it had four hundred twenty five thousand regular donors. I'm reading this from from this article in the Times a decade ago, um, and it's in that decade lost thirty two percent of its volunteers. Now, Tom, I'm a historian by training. You're a maths graduate. You will have to work out what the absolute difference is for me. Mm. Um, that sounds like a lot to lose 32% of your volunteers, 35% of its regular donors. Um, and its income is basically stagnant, but of course that's after 10 years of inflation. So the money is worth much less than it was. Um, so I think people are noticing. I agree. And, and I'm very impressed that you, uh, when looking at the monetary change, you, you, you adjusted for inflation in your head. Of course, that's, that's, that's the key thing. The number of people doesn't inflate and the number of uh, donors doesn't inflate, but the, the nominal value of the cash does. And uh, what strikes me, Ben, is that you have to dig those figures out. And Robert Colville in that, in that article has. The spin, and, and it's not surprising, but the spin from Oxfam is that we continue to be successful, we continue to have a lot of donors, we continue to have a lot of supporters, the cash is rolling in. But you look at their accounts, obviously they're a charity, so they're, they're, their accounts are out there. You look at um, you know, the, the, the progress over those years, and, it, and it's, it's trending downwards, and yet you have to go and dig that out. We talk about go woke, go broke, but for some of these big organizations – uh, it's sort of go woke, go broke, but we're hiding it. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not going to make that point publicly. Um, we're going to. We're going to know about it internally, but it's it's too embarrassing um, to talk about to talk about publicly. So yeah, it's um, it's it's all trending in in one direction, and it's not surprising. It's just not surprising when you think about the sort of person who supports Oxfam. Generally, you know, they'll be they'll be probably quite middle class down the road, quite traditional, maybe, maybe, well, they'll be on all sides of the political spectrum, but maybe culturally quite conservative, just seeking to do what's right in the poorest parts of the country and recognize, uh, sorry, the poorest parts of the world and recognize that we are very privileged to, to live in a, in a rich Western country. And we're glad of that, but we want to do our bit to help. And these are exactly the people who are being alienated. These are exactly the people who are being told uh, they're not mothers, they're people who get pregnant. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, they're getting into a complete tangle. And I suspect, I don't know what will, I, I, I dread to think what will happen next, but it just seems to be wave after wave after wave. Well, there's this nannying sort of hectorish tone it, that Oxfam is taking towards its, its donors or would-be donors or would-be volunteers. Um, and while it's it's evangelizing itself internally and taking that message out to the world, um, anyone within the organization, as we were just discussing, who doesn't go along with this this new enlarged mission uh, is facing disciplinary procedures or being sacked or forced out of their job. And, and this is the story um, from Julie Binder, the unheard about a woman who I think is just named as Maria. I don't think her last name is mentioned. Um, who worked in an Oxfam charity bookshop, 
There was, uh, this is all very familiar ground. We've heard variations of this story dozens of times before. She had engaged in a conversation about J.K. Rowling because somebody else had suggested that Oxfam bookshops should ban the sale of J.K. Rowling's books. I mean, first of all, what a ludicrously totalitarian proposal. And secondly, how hopelessly impractical that a charity bookshop whose purpose is to make money for supposedly very good ends around the world, very poor parts of the world, to ban the sale of the most popular novels ever sold, the most popular children, but et cetera, et cetera, to ban those books from sale. Um, you know, it's just, it's nonsense on stilts. And Maria felt the same. She objected to this. Um, and having come to the defence of J.K. Rowling, um, found herself going through an internal investigation. Uh, it took a huge toll on her mental health. And then in the end, she left her job and um, this is a variation of the story we hear all the time at the free speech union well i i, I anna thomas from last week comes to mind uh ben that, yeah. that exactly the same sort of situation i think these uh suggestions this sort of back and forth that was going on was on the oxfam intranet well again what we talked about with the dwp intranet is the same situation and, and very mild comments just pushing back against the orthodoxy uh, end up leading to a disciplinary, end up leading to a, um, uh, a, a sort of, yeah, in this case, I think it was um, that, that she just couldn't deal with the, the toll it was taking on her at work. And so she, she resigned and then raised, uh, went to the employment tribunal afterwards. But goodness me, yeah, it, it, it's these echoes of similar cases resonate throughout this. Um, and that, I feel a bit, oh, sorry, go on, man. Well, I was just saying, I feel a bit stuck between a rock and a hard place because we've been talking for a couple of months about the issue of uh, ebooks being edited, retroactively uh, edited by platforms like Amazon or via platforms like Amazon, uh, new editions of books coming out which have uh, uh, boulderized Woodhouse or Ian Fleming or whoever. Um, and one of the answers to that has been, well, go to a charity bookshop, go to go to your Oxfam bookshop, get the original copies. And I mean, that's what I do. I, this will sound very middle class, Tom, but I quite like, <laughs> I absolutely love the, the Oxfam bookshop in Whitney, which is local to me. Um, and it, it's a great, great place. And uh, I'm very fond of it. Um, and I'm sure that the, the volunteers there would would not ban J.K. Rowling. In fact, I've, I've seen Harry Potter books on sale, I think, every time I've been in there. Um, and so lots of Oxfam volunteers must feel surely, as, as Maria does. Um, mm. But you've got this situation where the e-books can be edited. The publishers are rewriting uh, new editions that, that are coming out. And then that leaves you basically with the charity bookshops. And, you know, you feel very morally, philosophically compromised to think that you're giving money to people who behave in such an intolerant way you're right you're right well you'll have to come to london uh ben there's a giant second hand uh open air uh table set out with hundreds thousands of second hand books under waterloo bridge uh so you can, should come to london and hang around under under waterloo bridge i don't think it's charitable maybe maybe it is but uh, that will that will salve your conscience i think from from doing this but 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 you're completely right it's it, and isn't it crazy you would think oxfam is a very safe pair of hands for for giving your money um oxfam's the one that's come out the one that we found out about uh, and how 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 widespread is this you know if you go to the other charity sh shops are you going to find the same thing down the line um that they're actually kind of um 
expressing views and ways of thinking that are you know anathema to one's own and and i think so much is hidden isn't it so much is hidden you have to go and search for this stuff uh and find out about it or else you find out after the event um, well yes but but it seems with this this pride video that oxfam released with with this sort of devilish um cartoon version of jk rowling as it appears um they, they've sort of said the quiet bit out loud as it were and they, they've been more honest than they meant to and what does that say about the internal culture of oxfam that, that they could produce this this image of um of this demonic looking jk rowling um looking incredibly sinister in this video that's supposedly you know purporting to be about tolerance and um yeah. and all the rest of it um you know what what does that say uh, one of the things about about maria's case so uh, tom you always laugh at me for shoehorning something in about about roman history and i'm not going to disappoint today <laughs> I, I, was listening, <laughs> I, I was listening to a historian the other day talking about um basically byzantine religious ideology how how uh, roman emperors justified themselves and explained their failures um and uh, his argument was that uh, essentially these the sort of political propaganda of the time of, of the sixth and seventh centuries is all about the uh, moral worth or not um of the emperors and so uh, things go wrong for justinian because he's a demon they go wrong for tiberius because he's sexually perverted they go right for constantine or theodosius because they're so religiously devout and this is the way in which which triumph or calamity are explained and he was talking about this in terms of moral hygiene and i thought what a fantastic mm. phrase that is to apply to our own times because the issue that maria in her oxfam bookshop had is probably not what she was actually saying the issue is that in defending jk rowling she had done something morally unhygienic she touched this this miasma um the, the, this taint this sickness of being non-woke and it had affected and inflicted itself on her so she was then as contaminated as jk rowling is and so it's this sort of pre-modern view of sickness um and if you're not woke if you're not part of the elect what matt goodwin calls the new elite um you're tainted by it and you spread it everywhere you go and it put simply it's guilt by association and you have to put a bell around your neck uh, and head off to the leper colony so that you won't yes. infect anyone else. You, you you genuinely need to be locked down or quarantined or, or 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 go through go through what we went through in March, April, twenty twenty all over again just because you're you're morally unhygienic. I think that's a that's a very apposite description of 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 what's happening. And you know, in amongst that, of course, you're saying there was an emperor who presumably was in charge. My question in this situation with Oxfam is, who's in charge? We often talk about, isn't it yeah. great to get the adults back in the room? Clearly, the adults are not in the room. Where are the adults? Um, the board of directors, the executive management team should have caught this, captured it, checked it. And something didn't happen. And something isn't happening uh, and needs to be sorted out there because because you can't run you can't run a charity, you can't run a business and let these sorts of cartoons get out it's just it's just terrible um it, it's we seem to have a bizarre model whether it's um in in business or any other type of workplace where, where you have this sort of diffuse totalitarianism where it's not coming from top down um it, it's mm. coming from the mid-level it, it's coming from uh from young new employees who bring the the attitudes of of university and tiktok or whatever uh yeah. to their employer or their graduate training scheme and lots of this is uh is then codified through workplace 
codes of conduct through equality, diversity and inclusion policies or uh, dignity policies we see a lot of, don't we? We do. And th this is the next area we wanted to explore is, is these workplace codes of conduct that have... Um, it's not codes of conduct, it's, it's speech codes, in effect, that yeah. are appended or, or stapled to codes of conduct. There's always been a, an employee handbook. The first thing you get given when you, you arrive at an organisation is, this is the employee handbook, this is how you take off holiday, this is how you claim expenses, this is the dress code. And now an appendix, and it's probably not even an appendix, it's probably now chapter one, is sort of equality diversity and inclusion it will be up there in lights at the top and you know we've spoken a lot about edi and these speech codes in the workplace well as i've, I've been looking at these these and, and talking with you about them ben it really does seem to me that these are the very opposite of or represent the very opposite of freedom of speech they they come in as Lovely words, equality, diversity, inclusion, or equity. I can't, you know, as we said before, apple pie and home cooking. I can't disagree with those words. But the way they're implemented through the grid of identitarian politics, wokeism, critical race theory, whatever it is, they are in absolute opposition to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And no one has ever said you're completely free in the workplace. Of course, you, of course you're not. You have to abide by um, a, a code of conduct, if you will, in the, in the workplace. But the, the, the total opposition of these concepts uh, is, is really quite worrying. And something else occurred to me. This is a multi-pronged attack. If you're in the workplace, you get your employer's speech code. You might also get your profession's speech code. You might also find yourself subject to your client's speech code if you're working in their office. Then behind the scenes, you might also find yourself exposed to your regulator's speech code. So in, for example, a financial company, you could have four authoritarian institutions imposing a speech code. And of course, it's the one that is uh, most stringent and, and most in line with the EDI, the, that's the one that will catch you. because you, And so there really is no escape. You really are like a fish in a net with this, I think, in, in the corporate world. I, may, maybe I'm overstating the case, Ben. I, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think it all comes down to the question not of, of what beliefs you possess, but what how you manifest those beliefs. And that mm. is what is curtailed and i'm using the language of the equality act because that is basically the terrain on which you know i don't know 90 percent or the vast majority of these battles at the moment are being fought on um and i can see if you're an employer you can quite reasonably in some circumstances say look we just don't want people talking about trump or american politics because every time that goes on in the staff tea room there's a huge row and we need you all to get on with each other so please when you're in the office or the supermarket whatever Please don't talk about that topic. It's just a hassle. It always ends in hassle. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. It doesn't seem reasonable, though, to say that you can't post about American politics or Trump or whatever it is um, outside of work, that you can't talk about it beyond the workplace. And that's what's happening as well. These things are creeping far beyond you know, the nine hours of your shift. They're creeping into your private life, your, your personal life, your online life. Um, and the other point I'd make is that there is there is an asymmetry so one side 
so Pride Month is a good example. One side can manifest its beliefs and is not shy about doing so. The other side is completely unable to manifest its beliefs or even just to uh, resist the imposition of the other side's beliefs on them. So uh, if you want yeah. to fly a pride flag at your at your office or from your college or put a pride flag on your desk, it seems to me vanishingly unlikely that any employer in Britain would stop you from doing that. Um, if you wanted to put a mildly gender-critical uh, <laughs> leaflet or something <laughs> lying around on your desk or in your workplace... It's it's very likely that you will have aggravation of some sort, or at least would reasonably fear aggravation, and that you just might not do that, or that if you did, you'd find yourself speaking to me because you need help because you're being investigated. Um, yeah. So yeah. Th- that's that is fundamentally unjust. That if a, if an employer wants to say, look, we, you talk about whatever you like, you know, as long as you're doing jobs, we don't care. That's a you know that's a reasonable view to take. It's also reasonable, I think, to say we don't want you talking about politics or religion at work because yeah. it always just causes an argument but what is fundamentally unjust is to say you lots of people can talk about politics and your personal beliefs but you lots of people can't and that's, that's the situation we're starting now that's a powerful point about the asymmetry and we found that in religious uh, contexts as well haven't we where little crosses around the the neck have been uh, uh, deemed inappropriate whereas other religious uh, symbols and signs have been have been allowed without question this asymmetry yeah. of the implementation and and when we go back to that edi idea you know there is and maybe that's part of where the asymmetry comes from there's absolutely no diversity of thought within the implementation of edi there's no dive everyone goes it reminds me a little bit of 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 how we how we did things in the world of finance when we were trying to build our our models. Uh, everyone looks at the best in class model and then kind of kind of copies it. So if we're modeling hurricanes, everyone will go to a particular model for how they 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 model the hurricane in I don't know Florida or wherever it is, and everyone ends up ultimately with the same answer because uh, they think that's the best model. It probably is the best model, and even the brokers can kind of estimate what the what the insurance company is going to come out with as a number because they're all using the same models. It's exactly the same with EDI. Everyone says, well, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to come in different, come into land differently on EDI from anyone else. So we're all going to use the same training, same organizations, probably Stonewall, probably Mermaids, probably whatever it is. And of course, we all end up with this, the great homogenous blob that we've talked about before coming back and one of the things we we um we submitted a response to a consultation this was the institute of actors and their new um code um edi proposal encoding that into the into the main code of conduct um and one of the things we said is is we need to have a variety of implementation methods so we mentioned the equiano project for example or don't divide us you know there are alternative ways of looking at this whole um, area of EDI without it becoming just photocopies of the same thing, just sort of changing the PowerPoint slides and adding the logo of the particular company you're looking at. But it's hard to stand out. It's hard to stand out when you've got the regulator, you've got the professional um, supervisor, you've got the client, you've got all of these different players. Um, and, and they see what happens when you do stand out sometimes, I think. 
And for the, is it? I think Matt Goodwin said it's the fifteen percent of the population that have these ultra progressive views. For those people, these courses are about pushing a particular worldview. But I imagine for a much larger group of people, it is just about compliance, about not standing out, about not being liable if one of your employees says something um, that causes an employment tribunal battle or something like that. Um, and it, it's just it's lazy and easy and straightforward just to do the. EDI diversity training course uh, that everyone else is is doing um, and it's just less hassle well poor Carrie at the moment is going one of our research officers at the free speech union is doing all of the unconscious bias training courses that we can find and I, I spoke to her last week and I think she's, she's laboring under under having to do all of those but I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of that what themes come out of that what critique Carrie can put on those unconscious bias training courses um, we, we, sh we should probably stress on at this point she's, she's doing those for the purpose of research not because uh, Toby has told her <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to take the courses yeah. of all flavors five times yeah. like, by no that's, means by no means let's just clarify <laughs> that if our, if our membership figures dip this week uh, we, we will know why but um yeah <laughs> another, another example ben in terms of the real life impact of this the, the nhs confederation uh, came out with new guidance this week about treating uh what to do when patients request treatment from same-sex staff and you've got a transgender care provider and the the real world implications of this were that you know, the edi view was well we need to look after our staff member our care provider and make sure that their transgender rights are protected and what that what that meant in practice was the patient actually doesn't have the right to be told that the person treating them is trans or that the person treating them is non-binary. And this is a real-life implication for care in very intimate settings. And uh, it, it's pretty shocking. I was, I was listening to some of the, 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 the commentary on this over the weekend. And, and it, 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 it's not just shocking. I mean, it, it, it's appalling, uh, some of these ramifications. If you just do the, the wargaming of this through and the situations where yeah. patients... May want to have a same-sex person in these very significant care situations and are being told no the patient doesn't come first actually anymore uh again very real life implication of these well, it's, it's more than just a speech code uh but it's it's uh it's a complete change in the way that the workplace fits around fits around care what, what's frustrating is that for you know, now the best part of a decade, people who have been ahead of the curve have been warning about the consequences of suppressing scientific or medical or philosophical discussions about these issues. Um, and the consequences to those who've been paying attention have been abundantly obvious for many years. Um, and society is is moving at the speed of of the slowest child in the class, trying to catch up with what was abundantly clear 10 years ago um, to many people who are thinking about these issues in detail and that suppressing these debates and these discussions produces the perverse outcomes th that you've just described um and, and it seems we're, we're 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 governed by a sort of malicious naivety um on the one hand um as well as the as i've described as matt goodwin's described this 15 percent of of ultra progressives who who are just you know, riding roughshod over our institutions in, in enforcing their view on everybody else and if we do say it's debatable, 
um, then it gets reduced to, you're debating my existence. You're debating my yeah. right to exist. Well, no, we're not, actually. What we're saying is that you have an absolute right to exist, and we need to work that out, how that plays out in whatever context. But so do other people. And rights yeah. and responsibilities go together, and sometimes rights conflict. And we've known this since time immemorial, but somehow this is reduced right the way down to you're denying my, my right to exist, which is just disingenuous, like you say. It's a malicious naivety. I like that phrase. It describes it perfectly. Well, Tom, I have nothing more to say, as you're now agreeing with me. <laughs> I agree worry, with you. Man. My worry is I agree <laughs> with you too much. So uh, uh, we'll have to find topics. And I'm sure we have got some topics coming up where we don't agree with each other completely. But I, I thought it would be good briefly to touch on another item that actually came up in this week's uh, Free Speech Union newsletter, which is HSBC's uh, political decision to close uh, the Ho a Hong Kong opposition party's bank account. The League of Social Democrats was the, the Hong Kong opposition party uh, that had three accounts closed down by HSBC. And I, I wonder, I mean, this is free speech. This is free speech in a, uh, obviously, in a place which has traditionally been fantastic, Hong Kong. You know, you go, go, when, it was, when it was in the 90s, it was uh, before it was handed back to China. And in fact, after it was handed back to China, it was, it was a bastion of, of, of free speech and, and democratic um, institutions. And we've seen this coming for a long time, that that has been gradually eroded, gradually eroded, gradually eroded. But what's happening here, of course, is that big Western brands are essentially uh, now working against the democratic institutions um you know i i don't think it's not it's not right to say that um you know they're going out to do this but i think the pressure on them behind the scenes is probably huge absolutely huge this is the chinese this is essentially the chinese communist party behind all of this putting the pressure on and saying you know we don't want these guys to have financial uh, services uh, provided to them. And, and the statement, I, I just thought it was a curious statement, Ben. I'll, I'll read it out because <laughs> I'll comment on it afterwards. But HSB said, we acknowledge that this decision may be disappointing for your company and we apologize for it. Nevertheless, we kindly request your understanding as we have carefully taken into account multiple factors and conducted a comprehensive assessment prior to reaching the decision. And as I read that uh, statement from HSBC. I, it felt like a teenager uh, finishing an essay and realizing that he or she is a hundred words short of the essay and so needs to come up with some bluff and bluster just to get up to the, you know, 1,000 words for the essay or whatever it may be. Because if you read that statement, it actually says nothing. We have carefully taken into account multiple factors. Okay, that's interesting. Bit vague, bit vapid. Yeah. And we've conducted a comprehensive assessment. Uh, good. Okay, nothing about the assessment, nothing about what the factors are. Um, maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe there is more detail out there that, that isn't in that simple quote. However, um, it does feel like uh, a computer says no, which maybe, maybe this is just the reality of a multinational company working with the Chinese Communist Party, putting huge pressure on them. Uh, I think half of their, half of their business is out there, or more, more than half their business out, is out there. Uh, but Ian Duncan Smith uh, described their behavior as appalling and said, yeah, HSBC is now very much a Chinese bank rather than a global bank. So maybe we saw this coming. Maybe this was somewhat inevitable. But, um, you know, I, I, I find it, again, slightly depressing to see 
some so a place like Hong Kong that was so democratic, a real standout place, uh, just reached this point where even HSBC won't won't allow a, won't allow an opposition to have a bank account. Well, as um, as Napoleon probably didn't say, um, when China <laughs> wakes, she will shake the world, um, and that's what's happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what's happening. So, well, I mean, well. Is this an example of financial exclusion? Yes, it absolutely is. It's not in the UK, and I, I'm, I mean, we uh, we've talked about uh, you know Oxfam and people people getting frustrated with Oxfam, but I, I, in some ways, yes, HSBC stands out in this particular report. But I suspect all the big banks, all the big global multinationals, in some way, shape, or form, are doing things that are somewhat unsavoury because they have, for time immemorial done that so it becomes it becomes very difficult i think ben then for us as consumers to make a difference because in this instance you know we can say oh boycott h well really you know where are you going to go where are you going to go that isn't you know in some way part of the same globalized reality economic reality so it's just something we watch from the sidelines and and keep lobbying um our political leaders to to call it out it's the double whammy of um declining relative Western power and declining individual power against these corporations and banks, if you, as you've just described. Um, and it's very difficult to see. I mean, I think we, we were talking about universities last week about, about whether uh, the battle should be fought within existing institutions or whether new institutions should be set up. I think in this case, operating in a, in a market economy, the answer obviously is that new institutions need to be set up. It's, it's a different case than with universities. Um, yeah, that has to be the answer. And and it's a difficult one because it's a question of scale. You know, we are yeah. a UK organization. We know various other free speech organizations in different countries where there's different laws. But in this case, we're talking about global, the global financial system, which from 2008 we know is, is as global as it gets. It's, everything's connected. And so the power, the influence of us is is very different and very difficult to know through what networks, through what mechanisms, we can make a difference. Um, you know, the same would be true of the World Health Organization, for example. You know, how do we, how do we kind of um, campaign in a particular direction for or against whatever they might be telling us to do? It, it becomes a very tricky situation. So maybe, maybe for us, it's about focusing on what we can control now and what we can do. And there's plenty to do at home already. Well, I think that brings us very nicely on to our next item, which is a discussion of an event that the Free Speech Union held last week with Professor Matt Goodwin. He was talking about his book uh, on the new elites that dominate British cultural life and indeed in America as well in the institutions. And he, he was talking about the, the, the rise of a university educated elite with values that are completely out of kilter with the rest of the population. Uh, I found it a very compelling thesis. And one of the phrases that he used in a Substack article, I think two weeks ago, uh, I don't think he said this at the event, but he used this phrase, low pay, high influence. There's lots of the pushback he's had is, is people saying, well, okay, I can sort of see that there's a new elite taking shape. But if you're earning £25,000 working for a museum in London, um, you, you know, in what way are you part of an elite? You don't own your home, um, et cetera, et cetera. You're, you know, 23 years old or whatever. So those people are not elite. Um, but I think he, th- this phrase encapsulates that paradox of, of low pay, high influence because Mm. if you're the person who gets to decide what the signs say at the tate 
for instance, you're probably not being paid very much money to do that. But nonetheless, you're, you're, you're shaping what every visitor to that museum is seeing. You're shaping the cultural debate. Um, and the nonsense you come up with will be reported in the Telegraph. So you do have a, a disproportionate level of influence compared to your, your salary or your job title or your economic circumstances. So I think he's right to describe a new elite, um, but, beneath, but beneath the, the sort of university vice-chancellors and the, the permanent secretaries in the civil service, there is this vast swathe of, of university-educated, young, probably very economically precarious compared to their parents at that stage of life, class of people um, who have a, a sort of stake in propagating woke and all of the intolerance to free speech that goes with it. Um, and we, we've, sp- we've spoken many times about the, the sort of underlying economics of, of, uh, of woke ideology that I think are quite important. Um, and it seems to me that, that all of these things allow that class of people, the, the poorer part of the, of the new elite, to, to sort of LARP at being middle class, to do live action role play, pretending that they're as affluent and influential as their parents were at their stage of life. Um, mm. And... So I think I think he hit the nail on the head, and I thought it was a really interesting event, and it, it will be on YouTube, I think, before long. It was a fantastic event and uh, an important book. His book's called Values, Voice, and Virtue, The New British Politics. And um, what I thought was interesting was during the question time, uh, clearly a, a recurring question was defining the new elite and how is it different to the old elite. And I thought we got we got... Yeah, and also enumerating the new elite. So how many are there? Is, is it really that 15%, given that 50% of people uh, go to university now? Or, or, or you know, it's, it's significantly more. And, and I think it, it, it was kind of marrying together both the fact that they went to these universities, but also were part of this woke movement. Uh, so there are plenty of people who go to university that are not part of the new elite. They haven't bought in to... Uh, the sort of the, the cultural uh, tidal wave that, that, that's sweeping over us. But there was a word that Matt used in uh, the, the question time which really struck with me, and he said repudiation. He said this is what the new elite are, are doing. They are the folks who are repudiating everything to do with uh, Britain, our history, our identity, our culture. They're repudiating it. And this is a distinct difference from the old elite. The old elite has always been there. The old elite, call them the landowners, the people who sit in the House of Lords, whatever you will, or even the people who went to Oxbridge uh, back in the day. Uh, and there was always a difference. They would probably never mix with uh, the rest of the country particularly. They would still go for, for dinners and holidays that, that the rest of the country couldn't dream of. But they loved Britain. But they loved uh, what we'd stood for, they they took pride in the same heroes, they took pride in the same way of thinking about our country. And so they were utterly different to the rest of the country. They were an elite, the old elite, but they didn't repudiate. And and there was that stark dystopian idea when someone asked Matt, well, where does this go? And he said, ultimately, it leads to a place where we all, as individuals, we've repudiated all of our communities and our, our, our way of thinking about ourselves. And we simply define ourselves by, uh, as immu- by our immutable characteristics. We're, we're left to build our own little networks that are unique to us, and we ourselves are sort of desolate 
on a you know on an empty plain where all the things that used to give us north south east west have been destroyed and we just see the remnants of them and i thought wow <laughs> that, that's that's a little depressing but that is the logical outcome of utter repudiation of 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 who we are and and what our culture is and it it reminded me a little bit of Douglas Murray's War on the West same kind of idea the West yeah. is waging a war on itself so this 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 idea is is recurring in in different places in slightly different ways it's it's an elite rebellion against the people or what the uh, the vast majority of the population um, yeah. I think repudiation is exactly the word. I, I think as well, he, he was chugging during the discussion about uh, the, the existence, of course, of, of an older traditional elite that superficially on paper looks quite similar to what he's describing. Privately educated, went to Oxford. Well, you know, that could be describing a senior civil servant in the 1950s. Um, but the repudiation is the difference. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine the new elite um, undergoing the process of social mixing that the old elite went through in the First World War fighting in the trenches. Uh, you know, that, that's utterly, of course, utterly implausible, uh, a laughable proposition. Um, but what, what struck me as well was was Matt Goodwin's personal journey. I think he used the word journey himself. Um, and I remember reading his, his book that he wrote with Rob Ford, I think 10 or 11 years ago, about the rise of UKIP and the left-behind voters who feel this, this disconnect between their wishes, their economic circumstances, and the national conversation. And I think over the last 10 years, more and more people would describe themselves as being part of that left behind. And at the time, he was talking about people in um, poorer coastal towns dependent on tourism um, who whose lives were becoming immiserated. But I think that now the people who feel left behind are not just that economic group. I think that there is a significant block, plurality, majority of people perhaps in the country yeah. um, who feel left behind from the national conversation. Of course, we're all getting poorer as well. So um, I, I think he, I think he, his analysis back then a decade ago was absolutely spot on. It's only become more salient. But since then, um, he's obviously been studying these problems, this group of people, um, and that perspective that he seems to have become immensely frustrated. And this came across in, in his discussion, his speech the other night, um, with the lack of political responsiveness in our, in our system. I mean, he, he really was just ripping it to shreds in a way. I don't think I'd heard him speak like that ever before. And, you know, he's always on Daily Politics or Politics Live, as it's now called. Um, and, uh, you know, he's on the TV quite a lot. Um, he's writing quite a lot as well. So he's got a big high public profile, deservedly so. Um, but the manner in which he was speaking the other night was fundamentally different. You could see that that studying this deep and I think dangerous frustration in the country um, had caught on. And he, he obviously shares it as well. Um, and and the, 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 the meeting itself, it, it struck me like a sort of 19th century um, political meeting. It was, it was quite hmm. raucous at times. Um, there was a, a good deal of audience participation, some of it quite blunt. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a really interesting event. It was a really interesting event. And uh, he's, a, he's a brilliant speaker. Well, two things struck me uh, as well, Ben, during the evening. The first, Matt talked about the, um, the, the reception that the book got. Uh, and yeah. the new elite don't like being called out as the new elite. And why, why do the new elite not like to be called out as the new elite? 
Well, largely because that would suggest they are now the new orthodoxy and the whole point of being the new elite that repudiates uh, the prevailing culture is that they are trying to tear down rather than create a new orthodoxy, even though they wouldn't put it in those terms. So the, the, the new elite absolutely hate being called out and labeled and defined. And, and you could see that in the reaction to the book. Now, there's a slight danger there that you put people who don't like the book or don't like the idea into a, a place they can't get out of. A bit like, you know, if you say you're not racist, then you are racist. You're caught in a catch-22. So there's a slight danger of repeating that and saying, oh, you didn't like the new elite. Okay, so you've just proved that the idea of the new elite is what I thought it was. Uh, so we don't want to put you know, folks who disagree with, with Matt's hypothesis into that, into that, into that place. Um, on, on the one hand. But the, the other, the second thing that came out very much of what you're saying, Ben, his journey, is the question recurred. So is the Conservative Party able to reform itself? Is the Conservative Party going to be the way out of this? Uh, is the Conservative Party in any way a place that we can reform so that it will, it will, it will lead, us, lead us through? And his definitive personal response to that is absolutely not. There needs to be a new vessel. And, and I guess that's for a number of reasons, if I understand his, his argument right. But, but the one I, that strikes me the most is, well, the Conservative Party has presided over, uh, since 2010, essentially, has presided over the acceleration of this dismantling of the cultural heights of the economy and, and, and letting them be captured, whether it's the NHS or the, you know, the Church of England, whatever it is. Uh, the, the, the Conservative Party has been in power. So given that they are in power, how can they then be the ones to undo all of what happened under their watch? Um, but yeah, he absolutely says we need a new vessel, a, a new group. And, and it's a, by talking, talking about it, by having the debates that haven't been had and getting things out into the open that have been sort of swept into the dark corners uh, that will start to take shape, whatever that, whatever that new vessel is. Now, you know, who knows? Who knows what the right answer to that one is, Ben? I think what another point that struck me was the when he was talking about whether it was the Conservative Party or again we come back to this question of new institutions, a new party that is going to have to take on these battles, whether it be about free speech or about other broader cultural uh, and culture war issues. Um, there is within the Conservative Party it itself is of course a coalition. That was one of the points that was yes. being made as well. Um, but one part of that coalition does have this patrician disdain for um, what it brands as culture war issues that are not the sort of thing that respectable people talk about at dinner parties. Um, and there, there is this reluctance to sort of get into the gutter, as I think they see it, um, and discuss the implications of trans issues or whatever. Um, and also that this is sometimes pitched in terms of, well, this isn't really what people care about. I mean, most voters just want the economy to be working and they want to be able to get a doctor's appointment. They didn't really care about the cultural stuff. Now, of course, the economy and the health service and all the rest of it and crime, um, they are, the, and immigration, they are the most important issues. But people do also feel very, very strongly about what their children are being taught at school, for instance, or about what they can say uh, at work or the fact that their employer can censor them out of work or that there is this pervasive culture um, 
of stifling dissent, of people feeling very uncomfortable speaking their minds. So, of course, people are going to say, well, the most important thing is that I can pay my rent or mortgage and that I can afford to buy my children's school uniforms. Of course, that's the most fundamentally important thing. But it's wrong to say that people don't care about these quote-unquote culture war issues as well. People do care about the character of the country they're living in profoundly. And I think any, any competent political party or government should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> well, the, ta- the takeaway, as I remember at the end of the talk, was let's go and have a drink. Uh, I rather like <laughs> that way that he ended the talk. But in essence, he was saying, exactly, let's go and have the discussion that we haven't had. Let's go and have the debate. Let's go and create the coalitions that we need to, to turn the tide on this. And, and um, actually, another book caught my eye this week, which is Brendan O'Neill's n- new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. I mean, that is so in our wheelhouse, isn't it? Free speech. And it, it really leads on from, from what Matt was saying. They'd go and have a drink. Talk about this. Talk about how we fight back. Um, so I'm going to my my homework I think for this for this week is to have a a read of Brendan O'Neill's uh, new book which is is has had rave reviews so far, um, but that's uh, um, that's uh, go on sorry, it, it will not be available presumably in Oxfam bookshops. I, would just, I don't I would believe it. It's available on Amazon UK. It's available on Amazon Brand US. New. I don't think it's in Oxford. I don't think. I don't. To be honest, <laughs> probably there aren't. There hasn't been enough time for it to be a second hand. No, book. no, yeah. <laughs> good, good. Quite right. Well, we have some some excellent events coming up. So if you like the uh, the sound of uh, of the event with Matt Goodwin, it was an absolutely electric atmosphere in the room. It really was fantastic. Mm. Um, we do have we have three events coming up that are worth talking about i think now and and various others on our website so tom what's the first of those so the first of those is coming up this thursday the 15th of june it's called the battle for free speech it's in cambridge a regional speakeasy so as our listeners know we do try and get out into various parts of the country um and and talk about uh and put on events uh, in those areas it's with jane robbins journalist and author she's in conversation with toby young uh, it's almost sold out, so do grab your ticket uh, as soon as you can. We've got two other speakeasies, haven't we, Ben? Yes, we do. Uh, one in Edinburgh on the 19th of July, Can the Arts Survive and Thrive in Scotland? And then another in Manchester on the 20th of July, Free Speech, A Radical History. Uh, and then there is a book launch on Wednesday, uh, the 5th of July in central London. And that's with Sharon Davies talking about uh, her book, Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport and Against Attempts to Silence Its Champions. And counting those up, I realise that is in fact four events, Tom, not three, as I said. Which it is. is. Why it is because there are there, there are three speakeasies, and what I love about the speakeasies there is that they're they're themed around the location. So particularly that Manchester one, very much linking in with the history in Manchester, its own radical history. So the speakeasies, you know, thanks to Jan McVerish, our our director of events, are, are very carefully thought through to match the location where they'll where they'll take place. So uh, do go to the website and sign up to to those, and uh, hopefully. Uh, we will see you. We will see you there. But I think that's all we've got for today. So, thank you for listening. Yeah, 
Thank you very much. And it was great to speak to so many listeners at the event last week um, before Matt Goodwin spoke. It was really nice, actually. I spoke to quite a few yeah. listeners. Um, do get in touch if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover. We're always up for suggestions. And do come along to one of those events. They're, they're always good fun. And we're always up for a drink, aren't we, Tom? We're always up for a drink. Especially as Matt Goodwin said, let's go for a drink. I mean, you know, I'll, t- I'll take it. I'll take that command from anyone then. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, goodbye. Goodbye.